It is Wednesday, November 6th, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk with Braden Olson. He is a Democrat running for Congress in the 8th District. And then we discuss the Alabama Senate race with Julie West. Julie is the District Coordinator for Indivisible in District 1, which includes Alabama. And she's on the ground there and will give us a sense of what is going on and what we can do to help. Also, we have some sounds from the tax bill protest at Dave Reichert's office in Issaquah. Braden Olson is a Democratic candidate running for Congress in the 8th District, and we are very happy to have him here on the show with us. Braden Olson, welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. So good to be here. So it has been, uh, what, almost two months since you declared your candidacy. Uh, How's it going so far? Well, it's been going well. Um, I think one of the things... um, you know, on that is I'd, I'd actually been, um, you know, meeting with voters long, long before that. Um, you know, in some ways, I would say I was a bit of a, of a hesitant candidate. Um, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a Democrat and I wanted to see a Democrat take this seat. You know, so I was interested in helping whoever could do that. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. as you know, it's a very crowded field. And so I think yeah. you're anticipating my next question, which is what made you decide to jump into the race and, and why now? Absolutely. So again, so I was, I was spending months out there, you know, me with the teachers and the machinists and all the legislative district chairs. Um, you know, I, I also personally, um, you know, wanted to have an exploratory committee um, and get some real data on the district. Like, what is it going to take for a Democrat to win here? Um, and ultimately, you know, when we put all that together and we talked with the voters and we talked with the Eastern Democrats and we talked with all the people in the district, there became this really clear picture of, um, you know, what it would take. Um, the, the polling information we got was was very similar to that. Um, and then I realized that if I chose not to run, um, I'm, I you know, put call spade a spade. I, I might be helping the Republicans out um, by not running and giving them a better shot. And I just I couldn't reconcile that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm too concerned with what's happening in our country and seeing what I saw. It became clear that if I didn't run, I was making a choice, too. Okay, well, so then how do you see yourself as fundamentally different from the rest of the field of Democratic candidates? I mean, obviously, you're the youngest person or one of the youngest people in the race. You are uh, an entrepreneur. You're a self-made millionaire. Uh, beyond that, what what are the things that you think really set you apart? Yeah, well, I might be um, I might pre- be preempting one of your questions a little bit um, because I think, you know, one of the other conversations about this district um, is that this district is considered to be a, a pretty heavily gerrymandered district. Um, and so I, I think what's interesting about that is we tend to think that this district um, is gerrymandered to preference the Republicans. What's, what's the actual fact, though, is that this district has elected Democratic presidents all the way back to Bill Clinton right. without fail in every single election. So the district is gerrymandered, but for a certain profile, not necessarily a Republican. So uh, a lot of what, you know, came out, you know, as I talked with the Eastern Democrats and the same thing came out of our polling and the same thing came out, you know, as we were talking to the Democrats in Kent and Auburn, um, is that 69 percent of this district, which is more than any other field that we that we even investigated. Right. healthcare, environment, everything else that's that's Democratic policy, 69 percent of the district was looking for someone who came from a middle class background, started a business and has an economic plan for the middle class Um, and just up and down. I mean, that is (laughs) that is my life story, which which hopefully we'll get into here. But that's my entire life experience. 
Um, you know, so when I was, you know, talking at the recent Democratic Forum, you know, about a very clear plan for how we're going to create clean energy jobs in this district, how we're going to unite the east side and the west side, um, you know, that that was something that really was turning heads um, because, you know, th this district is gerrymandered, but it's gerrymandered in a way that we can take advantage of and, and put a, a Democrat in the seat. Well, you are correct in that I do want to get into uh, the specifics <laughs> of everything that you just talked about. But I want to just touch on your background a little bit because it is unique. You're a self-made millionaire. Uh, you're an entrepreneur. You uh, made your name creating innovative educational games with your mm -hmm. company, Novel Inc. You are currently the president of Wilhelm Enterprises. That is a, a Seattle-based holding company. You know, a lot of self-made business people have gone on to a career in politics. But I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, for you, how you feel your work in the private sector has primed you for a public position in Congress? Yeah, well, it's um, it's it's a really interesting story. If I can if I can just dig even a little bit deeper into the background, right? Go go all the way back. Um, so I I grew up in Vancouver, Washington. You know, I I was born and raised here in Washington, and both of my parents were public school teachers. So I grew up in a family where my dad actually worked three jobs so that my mom could afford to get her education, pursue her dream of being a teacher. And um, so I had never even met, like literally not even met someone who'd owned a business in my life until I was 18 years old. And so I kind of grew up, you know, and I was watching what was happening in, in the culture at the time where, you know, you've, you've probably heard this stat, but most kids growing up today have now played 10,000 hours of games by the time they're 20 years old, right? right? Which is mind-blowing to, to a lot of people in, in prior generations. Um, and I was, I was just really concerned about, you know, is there a way to kind of um, shift that, th that energy and that, and that force towards good? Um, and so once I learned about, oh, you can, start, you can start a business, that's a thing that someone can do, um, I, I went from... You know that and having people tell me like you know look you're you're too young you um you know you don't have money i literally when i when i started that company i had ten dollars in my bank account um and and say you have a less than oh by the way it was also 2008 so the financial oh wow was so great, great timing yeah <laughs> yeah it was so good and so people were telling me like you're crazy you literally have a less than one percent chance of getting funding for your company and doing this thing and i just believed in what i was doing and so i ultimately i became the youngest entrepreneur that had ever been admitted to entrepreneurs organization in, in Seattle's history, um, which, you know, was, was just a huge thing for me. But, um, I, I just always like, I've always been looking for how can you do good in the world? Um, and that's what my companies were about. You know, I'm so proud that, you know, today we've helped improve education in 50 schools. We're working on a project for the national science foundation and how we can help enhance entrepreneurship for the next generation. Um, you know, and yeah, so my, you know, I guess my whole background has just kind of led me in this direction of, you know, what is what is the greatest thing I can do with this moment in my life to help the most amount of people? Okay. And, um, you know, when I when I saw everything that was that was happening, uh, became clear what that what that would be now. Now, I have heard reports that you are self financing your campaign. Is that accurate? Uh. <laughs> So uh, it's a combination. Certainly, I have a lot of people who are supporting me as well. Um, we have a couple of uh, quite quite big events coming up here in December uh, too. I didn't yes, mean to imply uh, that you're not uh, soliciting donations. Uh, There's a donation button on your on your page that people can see. But I I am wondering uh, about this self financing. Have you set a specific amount for yourself? 
Well, um, the way that I the way that I put that is, um, you know, at the at the end of the day, I'm looking at a country that I'm I'm not concerned about, you know, the next election cycle. I'm concerned about where we're headed over the next 20 years. You know, I'm seeing a country where right now we have 10 percent higher uh, or sorry, lower employment in the millennial generation than any of the last three generations, which all had the same employment during that time period. And, you know, automation is taking us to a place where 47% of the jobs are going to be eliminated over the next 10 to 12 years. So for me, when I look at, am I willing to spend my personal money to, to finance a campaign that could make a difference uh, in what's happening? It's, it's a no brainer choice because if, if you have a, if you have a country that's headed towards 20 or 30% unemployment, I don't care, you know, who you are, you are insane to think that you're going to be okay in that equation. Um, you know, I think I, I try and explain this to to people in the business community all the time, you know, who are voting Republican and who think that, you know, it's fine because they just want to, you know, another little tax break or another little tax break. <laughs> the end of the day is we're headed towards a country where like your money's not going to be worth anything. Start investing it and in fixing this country and helping people and fixing the inequity. And so you see self-financing your campaign as part of that investment. Absolutely. I see self-financing my campaign as uh, what else what else could possibly be more relevant? All right. Well, look, let's let's just dig in and, and talk some issues. You you touched on a, a couple of them. Uh, tax reform um, mm-hmm. on your campaign website. You've got a number of positions laid out, uh, and I think that's a good place to start. Obviously, because that's what's happening right now. The GOP is fast tracking it through Congress, uh, their tax bill. Um, And that is uh, as we conduct this interview on Friday, December 1st. This is a pretty unpopular bill uh, with support somewhere in the 20 to 30 percent range, depending on the poll. Um, Now, you know, the Republican orthodoxy here is it's it's nothing new. It says that lowering the corporate tax rate stimulates the economy. What is new is the scope. Uh, Now, there are differences between the House and Senate versions. But walk us through your take on this bill as it is currently written. Okay. Uh, yes. Um, so you might have seen from the recent form, I got quite uh, animated by by this topic. Yes, um, you did. You know, I have <laughs> a lot of thoughts on this. Um, we'll, we'll modulate the so, volume here you know, if you, uh, you know, if you get loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Um, no, we, we really should be that up in arms. You know, we should be emotional about this. We should be passionate about it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, and, and I'll, I'll repeat a little bit of what I said there. Please. Um, you know, it's a it's a bold faced lie. Um, that is not how like corporate taxes cuts do not lead to more job creation. The only thing it does is lead to more money to shareholders and more money you take home to the bank. So, um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of people that maybe you can make that argument. And simply because they're not part of that business community, that argument maybe resonates with them a little bit more. But the reality is, there are things we could do to create jobs. Um, you know, one of them is incentivize entrepreneurship. I mean, that's where net job creation is coming from. But in fact, let, and let me be super clear about this: the Republican tax plan actually hurts all but maybe about two percent of businesses. Right. So even the argument that you know this is maybe good for small small businesses or startups, and it's absolutely not true. And in fact. Uh, even Goldman Sachs did analysis the day after I talked about it at the forum that completely agreed and said, this is actually going to be bad for all small businesses. 
So, you know, we're looking at we're looking at a policy that, and and let's let's make it absolutely clear. We're looking at a policy that's going to hurt everybody in the middle class. It's going to hurt businesses, most businesses. It's going to decrease jobs, not increase jobs. And the only people who think they're going to benefit from it is this super small group of of you know super wealthy individuals and Fortune 500 companies. And ultimately, I cannot say enough. I cannot say enough as someone who has an understanding of business. This is a short-sighted thing that will even destroy them. That is the direction that we're headed in. And so it literally helps no one. So then how do you see tax reform that would benefit the uh, constituents of the 8th District? It it is a very diverse district, uh, so it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. So um, one of the things that, I mean, we've got we've got to maintain, uh, you know, the state, the state and municipal deductions. We've got to maintain, um, you know, housing deductions and, in fact, increase those. I want to advocate for a similar renters deduction, you know, that people are getting in their mortgages, because, again, we're now facing an economy where we have more people living at home than at any point in uh, in American history uh, at this age range. So. You know, I'm so concerned about the people who could be using tax breaks to help them get in a position where they could buy a home. Um, and, and obviously, we're doing the exact opposite. We're increasing the taxes on the middle class. Um, so anything I could do to reduce that, I absolutely think corporate taxes are fine. They do not need to go down. Um, I think that, uh, in fact, we're going to have to start very carefully looking at industries that are, and this is something that you're, you're only going to hear from me um, in terms of uh, our, our candidate side. We have to start looking at the industries that are automating, and we have to start increasing their corporate tax rates, because ultimately they'll be as profitable as they've ever been. But only they're hiring they're less people. Those jobs, right? Yeah, that's that's where we need to be increasing our tax revenues. Um, so in terms of where we increase it, we're going to have to look there. In terms of where we uh, get more rebates to people, I think there are things like mortgage deductions, renters deductions, um, and I think they're, um, yeah. I can hear the Republican rebuttal to that, which would be if you raise corporate taxes on businesses in the eighth too much, they'll leave. What do you say to that? Well, you know, if I'm setting, if if I'm in Congress, we're setting federal policy, right? So I'm not setting. Uh, taxes on just eighth district businesses, right? I'm, uh, we're we're setting a tax rate for the country. Sure. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, if they're talking about it as a global issue, right? So if we raise corporate taxes too much, then those um, those companies leave the United States, right? Well, sure. That's the argument that Paul Ryan has been making. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Somewhat yeah. Uh, speciously, given the fact that, and we've had this discussion on, on this show, but the uh, nominal tax rate of 35% is actually not at all what most corporations pay. Right. Most corporations pay 14% less, some, and some in the area uh, pay none at all. So. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And in fact, um, I guess my if I were just going to be rhetorical without data like they're being right, because that's just <laughs> not backed up by anything sensible. Sure. I would say, well, um, decreasing the corporate tax rate to what we're considering, knowing that corporations are paying about 18 points less than what we're actually taxing them, then we're going to get down to a tax rate of zero. And what's the point of even having the businesses in, in the country then? You know, like. Right. You know, if you're worried about some businesses leaving because we're going to lose tax revenue, well, we're going to have zero tax revenue under that plan. 
So how can you really stand on that argument at all? Um, I also, I mean, you know, America is the country that people want to do business. Um, we need to, I mean, this gets into immigration and everything too, but like we have to continue to be the country that brilliant people around the world want to immigrate to, you know, and be, be the center of that. Um, if we continue to do that, it doesn't matter what the, what the country or what the big, you know, companies want. If, you know, people want to be in this country, which they do, um, and they're fighting to get here and the most brilliant minds in the world are fighting to be here. The companies will house here because that's where that's where the workers are and the innovation and the entrepreneurship. So I think it's a completely false argument. Um, I think it's a it's a ridiculously rhetoric one when you get down to the point where, um, you know, we're going to see so little corporate taxes, period, under this plan. Well, I think Uh, that's, yeah. And I also think what you're saying is music to the ears of a lot of people who were uh, maybe wondering about your stand on on immigration. So you've answered that as well. Uh, Here is a question from a listener. Uh, Nate Schumer asks, how high should the marginal tax rate be on people making over a million dollars? And I think that roughly means, would you be in support of a tax measure that would increase your taxes personally? uh, So definitely. Um, yeah, I, I think what's really gotten strange um, in this country and in the world um, is, is that we have this sense, first off, let me talk about the country. We have this sense where we feel like we are isolated alone and America first and all we have to do is worry about us. And now the rest of the global world is responding to that with China, you know, stepping up and saying, oh, well, you know, we want to be collaborative and why don't, you know, we'll just be the center of, of world influence and, and conversation. And so I think that thinking is false on the global level where we, um, you know, we as a country, if we have great environmental policy, but we have no influence over the rest of the world, we're all going to suffer the same consequences, right? That's how I feel about tax policy and individuals in this country. We've gotten to this place where, you know, and I actually, I want to give a, um, there was an article by you know, a local billionaire who's a Democratic donor, Nick Hanauer, about calling out the the really wealthy on this exact point and saying, look, you guys think that that you can just keep getting richer and richer and we can keep marginalizing people and we can continue growing this inequity more and more and more and everything is going to work out fine. You're wrong. The country will destabilize. The You know, money won't be worth anything. People are going to come out with pitchforks. People are going to be starving. And so, yeah, absolutely. I don't know what point we forgot that this country is a united group of people that are working together towards common stability and success. And, you know, maybe maybe I do know when that started happening, you know, because, uh, you know, Clinton's labor secretary talks about how the the, uh, you know, the GDP and the jobs and the economy in this country has doubled since the 80s. But median income has gone nowhere or down. We've reached the greatest inequity that we've had since the Great Depression, and we've got, you know, where where did all that money go? Where'd the doubling go? It all went to the top, right. you know. And I just I ref, like I was born in a family where I barely had had a shot at the American dream, and I just I refuse to live in a country where children in families like mine and families like you know the people in this district don't have that access, and yeah, so. All the way back to the first question, um, yes, I think we need to start treating this country um, as a united group of people. And that, that, 
that means, uh, yeah, sometimes you have to pay higher taxes to do that. So in your statement on health care, uh, you rightly point out that in our current system, taxpayers are already subsidizing health care for those who can't afford it through emergency room visits, uh, bankruptcy from unpaid medical bills, and so forth. Uh, and you also talk about the savings associated with preventative care. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you get this message across? Uh, if people really understood this, it could potentially change policy. I so agree. I so agree. I mean, it's part of, you know, and frankly, I I have these dialogues, right? I mean, one of the things that people probably don't know about me is I worked on a piece of uh, bipartisan legislation a couple of years back, the Washington Jobs Act. We got through with like two votes against it or something um, in the Senate. And, And I'm very proud of that. But there's this like lack of dialogue that happens um, that, you know, I have, you know, Republicans down there that I that I worked with. And when you can really open up the dialogue and talk about some of this stuff, I don't know if it's I mean, I'm, I'm totally reaching. I don't know if it's because I'm younger and so I can connect with with some of those younger members that are a little bit more you know freewheeling and, and looking for new solutions because they also see that. 20 year drop that I'm worried about, you know, where the country crashes. Um, maybe it's that, maybe it's the, the business background, um, you know, or something like that. But um, I, I think, I think for whatever reason, when I go in and have those conversations, you know, and I can think of a particular senator here who said, wow, you know, I've been, I've been working in the state Senate for 20 years and you've made me feel the most listened to of any Democrat that I've, that I've worked with down here. Um, and I think maybe it, it's just there's a we start opening up those channels and then if they'll listen, that is an argument that they can totally understand. Like, oh, we're not only doing the immorally wrong thing because I don't I don't believe that, you know, Republicans are out there just knowing that they're morally wrong and like they're only doing it to be morally wrong. So they know that it's the immoral thing. And then they can also understand, hey, actually, we're we're being fiscally irresponsible to not move to universal uh, health care or a single payer system. Right. But in terms of talking with constituents, how do you get this message out? Because, again, I think if people understood the financial impact of what we're already paying, yeah, it could so, be a very powerful message that could make a difference. That's a really good point. Right. Because you have a lot of people who identify as, as fiscal conservatives in this district who are potential voters for us to flip the seat. So uh, so that I totally agree with. OK, so how do you do it? Here's here's the thing, you know, for people like you and me and a lot of the people around us, we are so passionate about politics because we know what's at stake and we know how involved we need to be. But there's a lot of people out there who um actually, you know, care about these issues, but for whatever reason or another, um, you know, they don't, you know, flip open the Washington Post every day and and keep themselves up to date. So I think we're getting to a point where um, let's start engaging voters in different places. You know, I I certainly have a plan where, you know, when we go out and do our door knocking in the cycle, I'm not just going to be asking for people's votes. I'm going to be inviting them to town halls, you know, community to community, people who want to show up and talk more about the issues. You know, I also think, you know, and I've, I've already, you know, um, recorded my first television interview in this cycle. Um, I think there's a lot of places we could go that, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, I, in, you know, in addition to being the candidate that I feel like has the most legislative experience, I'm also the youngest candidate. 
um, in that, that would likely be elected to Congress. Um, and so maybe there's other mediums, you know, magazines that don't typically cover politics that we can get to talk about these issues for the first time and have people who haven't engaged in the traditional sense, you know, pick up and look at them. So I think we need to go to new media. I think we need to uh, organize more kind of town hall experiences, not just ask people for their votes, but also for their opinions. Um, and I think, you know, we keep forgetting that we have this really great, um, you know, community of young people over at Central um, that, you know, want to engage for the first time and like, let's let's get out there and engage them and help them understand these issues too so that they can go talk with their peers because they're the most, you know, interconnected generation in American history. So right. I, I would say those three things. Okay. So you've already touched on a number of things about jobs, um, but I, I want to dig in just a little bit deeper. Uh, you, you do cite this statistic saying that some 47% of American jobs will be lost mm -hmm. in the coming years to automation. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think when a lot of people think of American job loss, they think of uh, ex jobs being exported overseas, and that's part of it. But uh, the the number that is being lost to automation is rising. So when you talk about creating new jobs and industries in the 8th, what do you mean? What sorts of jobs? I know that you've talked about clean energy jobs, but at what scale? Yeah, okay. So putting clean energy aside for a second there, because I think the 8th District is probably in the country one of the most well-aligned districts to become a leader in this field. Um, we already have so much of that infrastructure. There's so much more we can do. But let me, since we have covered that, let me put that to the side for mm -hmm. a second here. Um, one of the crazy things when we talk about this automation that's going to happen and a lot of people think oh okay so like factory workers are going to be out of a job right or you know xyz you know tr like opinion of these professions that we're going to lose that's that's not right um it is it is blue collar jobs it is white collar jobs it is you know it's going to be attorneys it's going to be it already is actually i was just talking uh, with a legal firm yesterday about how many jobs they're not filling that they used to fill that they're just having their their ai do now um so it is all the jobs so the problem is when we think of a plan of like okay what jobs are we going to create then the problem is you know we're we're growing up in a generation of people are like if if you're in school right now 70 percent of the people in school right now are going to be working in fields that don't exist yet and we're trying to prepare them for something so when i look at what jobs are we going to create i look at what are the pieces of infrastructure that will create whatever jobs are available so let me get really specific there what i want to do is things like um have the uh have the investor incentives that they have in british columbia and the united kingdoms and some hybrid of that that's been phenomenally successful for those regions in creating new jobs that incentivize people to invest in early stage companies. Um, I can get into all the problems about why that's not really happening as well as it could be in Washington. We have so much ability to do that. Um, but I want as many people as possible to have access to becoming an entrepreneur. One of the other things I wanna see happen is I want, because the number one reason that young people are not starting businesses uh, is that they have so much educational debt. And this is just right. a, a research that's been done. So I wanna see suspension uh, of educational debt and potentially, um, you know, a complete disillusion of that debt for people who go and start a business. Okay, so how do you get financial institutions on board with that? Is that through government subsidies? That would be a challenge unto itself, right? We've so we've done this kind of thing before. We've done this kind of thing before um, with other 
um, industries, like there was there was a debt forgiveness program for teachers at one point. Um, we've had some interesting things for apprenticeships where we subsidize that. Um, so it's not unheard of. The thing is, we just have to make this, if, if we can make it part of the national conversation that 47% of the jobs in this country, tens of millions of jobs are about to evaporate over the next 10 to 12 years, then we will make it a conversation that the industry and the profession and the group of people that we need to get behind are entrepreneurs and small business owners. Because by the way, all net new job creation comes from those young companies, not the, the old blue chip companies. So I think we need to make the 47% part of the national conversation. And then when we talk about a piece of legislation like this, and we're saying, hey, look, we've done this with teachers, we've done this with other disciplines before, let's do this with entrepreneurs. Um, I think we can have a real viable shot at making that happen. Okay. So uh, you have talked also on your site about a lack of accountability with our leaders, uh, particularly with uh, the current occupant of the uh, congressional seat in the 8th District who refuses to hold town halls. Uh, You say that you uh, will set up an app that alerts constituents when you vote. Uh, You likely know that there's already an app that does this called Countable. So how would yours be different? Uh, a couple of ways. Um, I don't want it to just be about, um, you know, my vote and the federal level. I want it to be something that, uh, it, you know, is super accessible where you log in and you say just what you care about. You know, the, the, I care about education policy. I care about gun reform. I care about X, Y, Z. And it lets you know, you know, hey, uh, you know, there's a town hall that you can show up at. Yes, this is how your legislators voting. This is what's happening on the state level. This is what's happening. So that the people who want to be informed about a specific thing get that information. And then the other huge piece is I want the communication to go the other way as well. So I want people in the district to see what's coming up on on a vote and be able to say, you know, I'm for, uh, you know, I'm I'm pro on this or I'm against this. Have me see it, right? Because as a representative, the fundamental goal of what I'm there to do is represent the people of my district, you know, in a national conversation. So I see that dashboard. And however I vote, uh, you know, a message gets sent out, whether people prefer email or text message from me that says, here's the reason I voted that way. You know, maybe maybe it wasn't, you know, I'm so pro-environment, but maybe there was a piece of environmental legislation that, you know, was going to, it all sounded good, but is going to give, you know, $20 billion in subsidies to oil companies, right? I'm going to communicate that in my text message or email that everyone gets. So what I want to do is not just create information, but to create a streamlined way to have a dialogue between not just me in the district, um, but hopefully something I can put pressure on other legislators to use, um, you know, and, and, and just make this how we, how we open up the conversation between constituents and the people who are supposed to be representing them so they are absolutely held accountable. And if you don't like how your, uh, you know, your representative voted, then you can donate to the, you know, the competitor's election campaign in the next cycle. Okay. So we have a couple more listener questions. Uh, Casey Shanklin would like to know, why are you a Democrat? That's uh, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> OK, uh, why am I a Democrat? Um, I think, you know, I, I grew up in a family where I don't even think that was ever a question. Um, you know, my oh, my gosh, my mom just leads the charge. Um, I don't think she had like 40 different Hillary shirts. And I I, I don't even know. Uh, any day that I saw her that she wasn't wearing one. You know, I grew up in one of those families. Let's start there. Um, separately, you know, 
I think if you look at the world in a way where you fundamentally see that everybody's success is tied together, how, how can you not be a Democrat? Um, you know, in the way that it is defined today, I, I just don't even, I don't even know how you could look at the world and believe that we are all connected and not, and not be a Democrat. Okay. Uh, Leslie Lloyd uh, says, and I'm just going to quote this in full, I'd like to encourage him to run for the legislature. He has some great qualities, charisma among them, but he lacks the experience. Serving mm-hmm. a couple of years in the legislature would give him a good footing for higher office. Uh, there's no question attached here, but I'll ask you, if you don't get traction with this campaign, would you be willing to or, say, interested in a run uh, for office at the state level? You did attempt to fill Cyrus Habib's state Senate seat when it came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um, So, again, I think it plays into what I said before about the kind of hesitant candidacy. Um, It was it was less about, you know, my desire to, you know, fill some higher office. Um, You know, I I looked at what was happening. Um, You know, I I (laughs) to be honest, there were a number of times where I said no. Um, You know, I'm I do. I do in, like the idea of serving at the state level because I've worked on, you know, affordable housing legislation that I'd really like to see happen. So it's not about that. It's about when we looked at this race, you know, and, and I, I do want to say one of the things that's interesting here is I'm young, um, but if you actually look in terms of kind of the front running candidates, I'm also the only one that's worked on legislation at the state level so far. So I would also say, while I'm simultaneously the youngest, I am the most experienced. It's not about ego. Um, you know, I looked at at you know the the data behind this race and the things that voters were saying and i was just concerned that um if i don't make this choice we're going to look at a at a dino rossi you know as representative um so you know i i hope that does that does that answer the question it does and you have invoked dino rossi and that leads to uh i think my final question and that is uh, as i said at the top this is a crowded field uh and i know that a big concern among democrats is that because washington is a top two primary state there is the possibility that too many democratic candidates might dilute the vote and pave the way for having two republicans on the general ballot and no Democrats. Um, so if you see this as a possibility at that juncture and you are not a front runner, would you be willing to step aside and throw your support behind whoever is? Of course. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, um, again, you know, I, I wouldn't have entered this race if I thought that we had uh, a clear path to doing that already. Um, if uh, such a clear path emerged. You know, my goal was to get a Democrat in the seat. Um, you know, frankly, I'm I'm sure a lot of your your listeners could empathize with the fact that this is this is a hard road. Um, you know, and serving in this way is a very difficult thing to do um, on a personal level, on a professional level. Um, you know, I want to see a Democrat in the seat. I see it as a form of service. Um, you know, I chose to pursue this because all of the information I had was that um, should I face Dino in a general, we would, uh, the Democrats would win. Um, and if I could, if, if I were not going to be in that position and there were someone who credibly could do that, you know, with, with the data, not just, not just something kind of ethereal, then I would love to see that happen too. But we've got to win. This is, this is our opportunity to make this a Democratic seat. And I think we need to be, I think we need to be really logical um, as well as as passionate um, if we're going to do that. 
So how can people learn more, volunteer, donate, uh, all that good stuff? Yeah, so um, we chose the, the name BradenForOurFuture.com um, because our campaign is, is not about the next election cycle. It is about winning this seat right now, but it's about what's going to happen over the next 20 years. So BradenForOurFuture.com. All right, I'll have that up on the SoundCloud page and the website. And uh, Braden Olson, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Julie West is the District 1 coordinator with Indivisible, and she joins us now to talk about the Senate race that is happening in Alabama between Democrat Doug Jones and Republican Roy Moore, a race that uh, the whole country is watching very closely. Julie West, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the the time. Heck yeah. So I kind of want to start by talking about the general mood where you are. Uh, And I should mention that today, uh, as we're recording on Monday, December the 4th, uh, Trump has officially endorsed Roy Moore with a telephone call. Uh, What are people in Alabama saying about the race? I imagine it really depends on who you talk to. But what is the general mood there like right now? Well, I'm only talking to Doug Jones volunteers. So our (laughs) mood is upbeat. We're not looking at polls. You know, Doug Jones says the only poll is the one on December 12th. And we just we're just working. We are heads down working. Um, We feel like there's a lot of attention on uh, the opposition because he's controversial and that makes news. Um, But, you know, the people of Alabama are um, meeting Doug Jones as he travels the state as he goes to, uh, you know, churches and fish fries, and they're just talking about kitchen table issues. So, so that's what we do. In fact, we have a South Alabama Doug Jones volunteer Facebook page where uh, it's a closed group, and it's where we organize all of our actions. And one of our rules in that group is we don't post about the other guy. We don't post articles. We don't post opinions. We post about work. Let's get going. Okay. You know, it's it's very interesting because I was going to ask you how your campaign was dealing with Roy Moore if you were going negative, but it sounds like you're just not talking about him at all. That's your approach there. No, no, no. I mean, a lot of people are. Um, we also have jumped into a Flip Alabama Facebook group that was started by someone in California, but we're trying to we're trying to build good relationships with people that are out of state and help them understand to trust the local wisdom in Alabama yeah. and not be, not be outside agitators, you know, to earn that old civil rights label. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of, um, you know, letting them know how they can be supportive um, in, in the most positive way. Well, I want to get to that uh, in just a moment because I know that a lot of people listening are very interested in how they might be able to help. But I'm curious to know what you're specifically doing. Now, are, are you working directly with the Doug Jones campaign? So as you can imagine, um, um, a lot of us who are involved in Indivisible um, I, I moved here. For, I'm from here. I lived in Little Rock for 30 years. I've been back two years. So a lot of folks, you know, got engaged in, in civically uh, in the political process after the the ele- presidential election. So you really have, um, I would say, three moving parts. You have the Democratic Party, you have the Doug Jones campaign, and you have groups 
that have not traditionally worked on campaigns, have not traditionally worked for the party. They're, they may or may not be Democratic Party members. So I, I see it as a really three moving parts. And what that South Alabama Doug Jones Volunteers Facebook page does is we talk to the campaign every day, our local person. We call up to Birmingham if she can't answer us. And we talk to the Democratic Party. And so we all get all of our events and check each other out. And then we post the daily Doug every day. <laughs> our actions. Okay. So are you also out now? I know you're the district coordinator, so you're working with a number of indivisible groups, but are indivisible groups going out and canvassing? Are they going door to door? Are they holding events? What sort of things are going on at that capacity? So, um, Again, all these three moving parts are working together, which is which has turned out to be really nice and not competitive. And so the campaign headquarters here in Mobile has um, phone banking where you show up and phone bank in a group and eat snacks. And they have um, groups who come in that are other uh, progressive groups who then that group may come in and volunteer for a phone banking slot. We also have virtual phone banking that people who live right here, you know, where where the headquarters is, but their hours make it better for them to do virtual phone banking. And then we do canvassing um, one um, 10 a.m., 1 p.m., now 3 p.m. with the time change every day of the week. We've also done tabling at events like the Art Walk, like the South Alabama football game. We just had uh, uh, cars in the Foley Christmas parade. There's going to be car in the Atmore Christmas parade. So anywhere we feel like we can talk to people, we're trying to show up. And we also did a yard sign canvassing where we went and knocked doors and said, do you want a yard sign? And put them out. So, and then we've done sign waving. We've done human billboards at drive time, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., 8.15 a.m. at big intersections uh, in Mobile. I can imagine that this is just an incredibly divisive campaign. So when you mention yard signs, I wonder if people have reservations about putting up a Doug Jones sign on their lawn, given the fact that Democrats have not been very popular in uh, Alabama for quite some time. Oh, there are way more Doug Jones yard signs than the other guy. Oh, it's good. Been, <laughs> I'm glad to hear. It's been outstanding. Um, you know, I would say two months ago um, when we were just, do you know, walk, walking, canvassing, um, there were people that said, I'm going to vote for Doug Jones, but I can't put a yard sign because a lot of my neighbors you know, are. I mean, I was the first yard sign on my street and I said, okay, uh, we'll see what happens. And it's been fine. Interestingly enough, a young woman that lives across the street from me who, um, and you know, the statistics about Alabama, almost everyone's a Republican. So she's a Republican. She and I are friendly over animal rescue stuff that we've helped in the neighborhood. She sent me a Facebook message two nights ago and she said, where can I get a Doug Jones yard sign? Wow. I said, uh, headquarters. Well, and I don't know if you've heard about the Republicans for Doug or GOP for Doug movement. Tell us. And no, I haven't. Tell us. So there's a Facebook group, Republicans for Doug, GOP, and then one of their one of their members decided, you know, you can print up your own yard signs. You, can, you know, you just don't want to always look to the campaign for all of your supplies. So this, <clears throat> this group printed out GOP for Doug. And so I said to my neighbor, what well, do you want, a GOP for Doug sign or a Doug Jones sign? She goes, Maybe GOP for Doug. So this, I think 
at my window at her yard sign right now. Um, well, that's that's great, and I, I actually should just mention for listeners that uh, you have worked yourself into a, a bit of a, 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 a respiratory illness. So uh, we we hope that you get some uh, get a little bit of rest uh, in in your downtime. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about um, how turning out the African American vote is going to be very crucial. What have indivisible groups been doing around that? So that gets back to the targeted voter. Um, and I think uh, I, I, I want to know if you know about Vote Builder. I bet most of the or, or other similar databases of voters. This is the biggest get out the vote effort in a generation in Alabama. They've not had a statewide Democrat in a number of years. So everyone's having to warm up their muscles, use them again, mm. and at the same time, get used to the new technologies. Right. So so if you were involved in canvassing in the last big big campaign, there was a big a, a solid Democratic candidate in Alabama. You had printed lists, and so now everything's on your iPhone or an iPad or a laptop. And and phone banking is the same way whether you're doing it from home or doing it at headquarters. And so you're able to search those databases and target neighborhoods target voting histories. And so that that's what the campaign has done and, and we have done also. And so we have through through that through those databases, and I don't want to go into any more confusing detail about it because it can be confusing. You're able to uh, segment out and really not only select streets you want to canvas, but houses. Right. And so that's what the effort's been as long, as well as sign waving uh, <clears throat> Uh, and other tabling events in African-American communities in, in Mobile and Baldwin County and other counties. I want to ask you kind of a, a just to get your personal feelings about something. I, I, I wonder, are people upset about how Alabama is being portrayed right now? Much of the rest of the country, I think, is having a hard time getting their heads around the fact that people could vote for somebody who has been accused of what Roy Moore has been accused of. of, I mean, of course, people all over the country voted for Donald Trump as well. But are people in Alabama expressing concern about how that state is being portrayed? Oh, sure. And that that didn't start with this campaign. Um, When I moved from Mobile to Little Rock, a number of years, long, long years ago, Bill Clinton was governor in Arkansas, and <clears throat> that was a much more progressive place than what I've been used to in, in Mobile. I mean, this city is 300 plus years old, so there's that, there's Mardi Gras. Um, y- you know, it's just a culture change, and it's, it's people do what their neighbors do and their coworkers do and their family members do, and so everyone has reported, voted Republican for so long. That's just what they do. And, you know, I would say we're all do using the eye roll emoji a lot. Mm. And people, when we see someone post, um, it is it is very frustrating. We're seeing this on the national level that people are putting party over state, over principles, over morality. It's that time in America. And I would say, I don't know if you've seen, there's an article called The Alabamification of America, um, but it talks about embracing uh, some of those things. It's it's totally embarrassing. It's you know those of us who work in the industries and we travel out of state and we have business partners out of state and we say from we're from Alabama and they roll their eyes. We've we've also gotten a little bit of that from people 
contacting us wanting to help. And uh, we just have to remind people there is a wisdom here in Alabama that we're trying to amplify. And we don't necessarily need people from other states to come in and overlay that or override that. Well, since you bring that up, um, you know, when I told members, indivisible members here in Washington that I'd be speaking with you, people first said to say thank you for the work that you're doing. And I, I definitely join in that. But also, they'd like to know what people who are not in Alabama can be doing to help out. Uh, I know that there's been a lot of out-of-state phone banking, people sending postcards. You mentioned that nobody wants to be seen as an interloper. What are your feelings? What are the sorts of things that people out-of-state can be doing that can be really constructive and helpful? So the main thing with the, that the campaign and then those of us, you know, in these other groups, we, we never wanted um, the more campaign to, we never wanted to give them anything, a narrative around the, the, the Doug Jones campaign being run by outsiders. <clears throat> because he, to, you know, he, he is an Alabamian. Um, he, he was the, he had, family members in the in the steel worker in the steel mills in the unions uh, he's a gun owner he hunts um, but he is interested in those issues that have that are facing uh, Alabamians on a daily basis so that was the main thing we we wanted all the voter facing activities to be conducted by Alabama folks and so I know one of the things and I know that's been frustrating to a lot of our um, indivisible partners and your list listeners. Um, you know, it's just simply an educated guess about wanting to work towards the positive and not feed the negative. So we've said, don't come down in buses to Canvas. Um, if you know someone in Alabama, if you have a friend or relative and you want to come down and Canvas with them, yes. Just now starting to take the phone calls and we have had the postcards to voters campaign. I would say the other things, the other things that we've done on Flip Alabama is we, for example, we needed, we did a lot of locally written postcards here in Mobile County to Mobile County voters. And we, we did so many, we ran out of postage. So I just said, hey, anybody want to send me some post postage stamp money? And we raised enough money to send those postcards out. And so we've asked to fund for people that want to do things to fund like local transportation groups, yep. where it's local people doing it and local people getting paid to doing it, to doing it, rather than people spending money to travel down here, if that makes any sense. Well, so where can people donate? People have just been donating to the Doug Jones campaign or just to whoever through PayPal. Okay. A local effort. So, well, so um, you mentioned PayPal. Do you know of any specific PayPal accounts that are accepting donations right now that we can list on the website? I can give you mine. Uh, it's Julie at the red sorry, S A R I dot com. Okay. We're buying yard signs, buying postage, and we're also paying. We keep adding drivers for that day because the need um, seems to be growing. We have a uh, the, actually, the local Democratic Party is being the gateway to find out people who are willing to drive and people who need a ride. So we're working through them. Baldwin County has a similar effort. We're also asking for people to just cheer us on on social media. Um, also, to get out there on Twitter, 
one of our early efforts was to get the Doug Jones name recognition recognition out there. So I think we've we've pretty much done that. I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> but early on, no, and also the date. So when we had people write postcards or post on Facebook, it was the date, the date, the date, December twelfth, December twelfth, December twelfth. Doug Jones, Doug Jones, Doug Jones, and you know, and then and then post you're supporting Doug Jones. Give a reason. All right. Well, that all sounds great. And I will be listing uh, your uh, PayPal account as well as your social media on uh, the website. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add before we go? I just want to say thanks so much to everybody. It's meant the world of us. Uh, You know, know, we probably don't have the largest group of campaigners. Uh, We probably are not like Virginia. So it's helped so much to have outside support. And the other thing is everyone who's sent us support has helped create a culture change here in Alabama, culminating in the thing I mentioned before, which was the largest get out the vote effort here in the state of Alabama in a generation. Deeply appreciate you guys or deeply appreciate y'all. Well, I think that gives a lot of people hope. And you mentioned the article about the Alabamification of America. Well, it could possibly turn the other way, uh, depending on on how this goes. And even if this campaign uh, doesn't wind up being uh, victorious on the 12th, there has been, as you say, an enormous turnout of, of people and possibly even a sea change that might last to future elections. Absolutely. We're looking forward to 2018 as well. We've learned a lot. Well, Julie West, I want to say thank you again for all the work that you're doing. Uh, please uh, rest up, take care of yourself, and uh, we're, we're cheering you on here. Thanks, Stefan. We're looking forward to a victory on December 12th for Doug Jones. Congressman Riker, just vote now! So we will close this week on some sounds and voices from Monday's protest at Congressman Dave Reichert's office in Issaquah over the tax bill that passed the Senate and is currently in reconciliation. Well, I am enraged about the tax plan, and I just had to put my my anger somewhere. I think this is the most despicable, evil bill. We have to come out as a nation and say, this is only good for 2% of the nation, and 98% of us are going to suffer from this bill, and we have to say no. We have to get on the streets and say no. What I'm doing out here today is trying to figure out what on earth Dave Reichert, my representative, is doing today. Because I don't think he's doing anything other than clipping coupons from the rich Republicans that are supporting. The guy doesn't do crap, as far as I can tell. You got your mandolin. Uh, tell us tell us about some of the songs you're, uh, you're leading. Well, today I just have one song I brought, and it's a variation on If I Were a Rich Man. Okay. I came because I could to represent a lot of other people who are upset with the tax plan, and I feel I feel that we need to do something urgently. I feel it's getting shoved down our throats, seriously. I don't think even the members of Congress know what they're signing. So there's something in there to hurt everyone almost. Well, Stefan, I'm here because uh, the administration is against what I believe in. Um, I have a totally disabled son. He's going to suffer greatly if this bill goes through. We're retired. We're senior citizens. We have Medicare and Social Security. If that goes, um, we will not be able to be um, 
as vibrant as we are. We're going downhill. And if we get sick, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So I just am here to support my fellow indivisibles, my fellow people that want to say this is not right. In order, we heard from Judith Sean, David Edfelt, Kathy Geller, and Cheryl Bouchard, who drove all the way out from Ellensburg. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks to all of you who showed up, including Kat Martin, who brought the Trump chicken just for the occasion. And that will do it for this week's show. If you would like to learn more about the show, do head over to indivisiblepodcast.org. And as always, do keep the emails coming because I, I really love them. Hit me up with feedback, suggestions for guests, segments, whatever you want, just to say hi. I like that too. As always, that address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and my Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thanks again to my guests, Braden Olson and Julie West. And thanks as always to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>